0: We're in the book of Luke. Could you turn there in your Bibles? Aren't you glad you have a Bible? As I read the Bible, the more I realize how much I can trust God. Uh, People who believe the Bible, what you and I do with the Bible will determine what God does with you. And one thing I find is the Scriptures that I can trust the Bible. It's God's Word. It's the most uh, printed book in the whole history of mankind. And more copies of the Bible... Have been printed than any other book, and God wanted you to know that He's real through several things. Number one, creation at large. When you look at creation, when you look about how your eye was formed, and when you look at the beautiful colors in a fish in the Pacific Ocean, you see the marvels of a hunt, of a bumblebee flying, which is virtually they can't explain it. How does that, it's not possible based upon all the things that God does it. All the things that God does in, in the beautiful canyons of the Grand Canyon, the mountain peaks of Mount Everest, and other places of the world—you see the snow. Not one snowflake is. When you look at creation, you gotta you gotta come to some create thought. I don't know about your ancestors, but mine didn't swing from a tree. <laughs> one professor said I was once a an amoeba beginning to begin, then I was a a frog with my tail tucked in, then I was a monkey in a banyan tree, and now I'm a professor with a Ph.D. I don't know if that's your story or not, but uh, no, I believe when you see creation, you know real quickly someone made this. And the Bible says that God made you. He says, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are God's work, and that he knows right well. He knows you, he's with you, he loves you, and uh, he cares about you, and you can trust him. We can trust him because he's a creator. Number two, he put inside of us a conscience that knows that he's there. He is, everybody, no one is born an atheist if you say you're an atheist, it's because you have made yourself that one. You've created uh, ideals in your mind to make you think, well, well, God's not real. And I've heard this. And Professor Big Bottom says this. And everybody says this. And I have what I heard. And let me just tell you something. No one's born an atheist. And God doesn't believe an atheist. <laughs> no one really is an atheist. There's no atheist in foxholes. Because inside of us, there's a conscious awareness that there's someone bigger than me out there. Consequences, circumstances of life. How many of you almost died one time? You could, you could go back to them and you'd like, I should have been in eternity, but God did something miraculous to keep me alive. Yes, most all of us have stories about that. Well, that reminds you that God is real. And he's taking you, that's just not happened circumstances. But I think another thing that God did to prove to his who he is is he sent his son, Christ. Christ, when people get mad, they don't curse Muhammad or they don't curse Buddha. They curse Christ. You've done it and I've done it. People who are atheists curse his name with regularity. As though he's a real person because he is. You better believe it. But when he sent Christ, time started all over again, and 23, because of what happened on a hillside outside of Jerusalem with one person that was crucified, buried, and rose again. God wanted everybody to know. It even changed our calendar. You can look at the calendar and see that there's a God. But then his final revelation of himself is in the Bible. God put him, he gave him proof of him in the Bible. He said, Pastor, I believe that Bible is a bunch of, it's just a book written by a bunch of men, it's a bunch of fairy tales. Well, I just tell you, just read it. Read it with an open mind, and you're going to find while you're reading the Bible, it'll start reading you. <laughs> it will. Because the Bible says the Word of God is quick, it's powerful, it's sharper than any two-edged sword, and it pierces. While once you're reading it, it starts stabbing you. And it says, hey, John, I'm talking to you, buddy. It's a spiritual book. You can, might be able to master an Agatha Christie or a Louis L'Amour, but you'll never master that book. You might figure out your history book and your science book, but you'll never get to the bottom of the well in this book. It's deeper than the bottom of the well because it's, it's a spiritual book. And it tells us how to get to heaven from here. It tells us how to live after we know we're going to heaven. It gives us spiritual understanding. The entrance of God's word gives us light. It changes us. It provides God's promises to us. It tells the future. You know, God doesn't mind telling the future as much as one-fourth to one-third of the Bible is futuristic in nature. He doesn't mind telling the future because he's already there. (laughs) He knows the future better than you can remember what happened five minutes ago. And he puts it in print. You can look at the book of the Revelation, the last book of the Bible. And by the way, if you're scared of the book of Revelation, that didn't come from God. Every once in a while people say, I'm scared of that book. Don't be scared of that book. There's a blessing for those who read that book. But... uh, From chapter 4 all the way through to the end is all futuristics, And God put it right there and says, here's what's going to come down the pike if you're still here after I come back to get people. And he tells us what's going to happen because he's God and he's revealed himself through the Bible. But we're in the book of Luke, chapter number 7. In the previous chapters, Jesus has been, he's 30 years old. He gets baptized. And he gets the confirmation from his heavenly father that you're my son, I love you, and I'm pleased with you. He fasts for 40 days. Then he begins to go back to his hometown. They kick him out. He came into his own. His own received him not. And then he goes about and he he gathers 12 men that uh, will follow him and they will become apostles. He had many disciples, but few were called as apostles. He said many are many are called, but few are chosen. And those 12 were made apostles to be, he was going to spend time with them, send them forth to preach the gospel, and they would be sent out. They wouldn't become long-term pastors. They would become uh, arrows to go throughout the known world and get the gospel to people. After he chose them, he gave them the Sermon on the Mount. And we see in chapter number 6, a different way of thinking, a different, a different way of God's way up is sometimes down, and God's way down is sometimes up. And he has a different way in which he's teaching and indoctrinating them. Over the next three and a half years of his ministry, he'll begin telling them about his work and how he does things differently. Now they're with him. All 12 of them are following him around, and he is in Capernaum. Capernaum, uh, he was born and raised, excuse me, he was born in Bethlehem. He was raised in Nazareth, but Nazareth did not want him there. He was without honor in his own country. So now he's in Capernaum and seems seemed to be, it's right there on the, uh, the Sea of Galilee, which is 13 miles long, 8 miles wide, and he's at the tip of that situation. And it's a beautiful, beautiful uh, uh, lake of Genesaret. I've been there, and I think it's just unbelievable to see all that took place around that, that sea. However, he has made his headquarters in Capernaum while he's up in Galilee. And he's there, and he meets a, he meets a man who is a centurion. Now, he meets him because of, uh, of his, this man who's a centurion. Now, a centurion worked for the Roman government. He was a soldier. And he had uh, at least a hundred men under his uh, his rule, and that's why they call him a centurion, a century, a hundred. And so he worked for the Roman government, but he was a good man. And matter of fact, almost every time you see centurions in the Bible, you'll see that God says something good about them. The centurion that took Apostle Paul to Rome, Claudius. You'll find the centurion that's at the cross and said, "This man." Was a righteous man. You'll find that there are others who were a part of the, 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 uh, the, the Roman band that God he kind of mentions good things about the Centurions, kind of interesting enough. And it looks like to me that as they evaluated humanity and, of course, all things they did, they were, he was impressed with the God of the Bible. He was impressed with their people, the Jewish people. When he could have been cruel and they didn't, they kind of despised him and the Roman Empire having dominion over him. Matter of fact, they wanted a Messiah to come to, rev- to relieve them of the Roman Empire. But this particular man was a little different. Let's look, if we can, please, at verse number one. The Bible says this. Now, when uh, he had ended his sayings or taught them on the firm of the Mount in the audience of the people, he entered into Capernaum. Now he goes back to Capernaum. And a certain centurion servant who was dear to him, This guy cared about the person that worked for him, but he was sick and ready to die. He was on his deathbed. And when he heard of Jesus, the centurion heard of Jesus, he sent unto him to the elders of the Jews, beseeching them, beseeching him that he would come and heal his servants. And when he had come to Jesus and they had come to Jesus, they besought him instantly, saying that he was worthy for whom... Uh, he should, that he should do this. For he loveth our nation and hath built for us a synagogue. He even built us a house of worship. Interesting here. So this centurion has a guy who works for him that is so sick, he's about ready to die. And so the centurion goes to the leader of the Jewish community and says, is there any way that you can get access to Jesus? Could you go and find him and bring him here so he could help my servant? I don't want him to die. I love him. You can obviously see this man was a humble man. He was a man who cared about them. He was gracious to the Jewish people who oftentimes had issues with him. He said, do you have any access to this Jesus who's healing people and helping people in our community? Can you get him to come see my servant and possibly heal him? So the leader of the Jews said, yes, you've been good to us, you have favored us, you have built us a house of worship, a synagogue in our community. Yes, we'll go find him. And they went to find him. Normally, they weren't seeking the help of Jesus. They were were giving him a hard time, but they went to him. And the Bible says they came to Jesus and they said, you know, there's a centurion, he's been so good to us, he's been nice to us, he has built us a house of worship, he's a good man, but he has a sick servant. Would you consider coming? I think he's worthy of your effort to come and help his servant. So the people said he was worthy. Notice, if you would, please, the next thing the Bible tells us, verse number number six, and then Jesus went with them. Are you reading in your Bible there, verse number six? And when he was now not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying unto him, Lord, trouble not thyself, for I am not what? that thou shouldest enter unto my roof. Wherefore, neither thought I myself, what? To come unto thee. But say in a word, and my servant shall shall be healed. For I am a man set under authority, because I got bosses that I work for, and having under me soldiers, I got people that work for me. And because I have this authority, I say to one, go, and he goeth, and to another, come, and he cometh. And to my servant, do this, and he doeth it. The Bible tells us here that the Jews came and found Jesus and said, Hey, this guy is worthy. And then, as Jesus was making his way and you realize he was getting close, he says of himself, I'm not worthy. I don't want him even to come into my house. I'm amazed that he would even come this way because people said, Hey, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. And while he's on his way, he sent his servants out and said, Tell him, don't come to my house. I'm not even worthy that you would even speak to me or see me. Because I know, but I do know this, you don't have to come to my house. Just where you are. I, I'm a boss, and I have bosses. My boss tells me something I do. If they tell me to go here, I go there. If they tell me to come here, I go. I come there. And I have a hundred guys that work for me, and if I tell them to do this or do this, they just do it. Don't even come to my house. Just where you are, speak, and my servant can be healed. I'll trust you just to where you are. Don't have to come to me. So the the Jews say you're worthy. He says, I'm not worthy. You see the humility that comes here. Notice the next thing the Bible tells us, and if you would please, in verse number nine. And Jesus heard these things, and he what? He was amazed. He marveled at him. Wow. And turned him about and said unto the people that followed him, I say unto you, I have not found so great what? No, not in Israel. And they that were sent returned to the house and found the servant whole, healed, that had been sick. Isn't it a great story? It's a great story, but it's not just for our information, it's really for our application. I think there's some things we have to see here that we ought to see. Number one is that this guy had a good reputation. Do you? Do I? In our community, at our workplaces, at our school, what kind of a reputation do you have? This guy was not even saved, but he had a good testimony. I think that ought to be something off. This guy cared about people. He cared about his servant. He didn't want him to die. He wanted to help him. And he, he knew that the answer was not going to be in medical personnel, it was going to be in a miracle he had to come find Jesus. He had to get to Jesus. And then he realized, who am I? I'm on the outside looking in. I'm not Jewish. He's Jewish. I'm not the people of God. He's the, he's the Savior of God. I want to I just say this to you. I think there are many people just like this centurion. He was on the outside looking in. He, I think he had great interest and more faith, according to Jesus. People said he's worthy. He said, I'm not worthy. And Jesus said, I've never seen such great faith. No, not even in among my own people has anyone had this much faith. He had a great faith. I think there are people in this community and in your spirit of influence in my spirit of influence who have great interest in the God of the Bible. There are some obstacles. I think at least three. Number one... There's a stigma with being a genuine Christian. There's a stigma. The Jews, they had the right of circumcision. But for us, it's, it's more a difference. God has called us not to blend in, but to stand out in a wicked world that we live in. This world is not my. I'm just passing through. Jesus tells us uh, through the apostle Paul and his or through the apostle Peter in his word, he said, "You are strangers and pilgrim in this world." People are going to look at you and say, "You know what? I may respect that guy. I might respect that girl. I don't understand them, but um, they're different." Another thing that probably is an obstacle for people coming to Christ is not only the stigma of being a, a devoted Christian, but also the requirements, the, the rules, the higher level of behavior and activities that come with being a child of God. You know, if you're a Christian, you ought to live like one. The Jews had dietor- dietary laws. I'm, I'm glad we don't have those today. How many like shrimp? <laughs> yeah, like a piece of bacon. Everything's better. Even ice cream's better with bacon, I think. Yeah, but you know, we don't have those laws. We don't have to keep those laws. I think there's some reasons for healthiness that you might want to do that, but I don't think there's prohibitions in the scriptures for that. But there were for them. But I think many people on the outside look and say, you know what? If you really live for Jesus faithfully, a, it's, you're not going to blend in. You're going to have to stand out. And oftentimes it's an obstacle for people who want to be saved. I think the Centurion probably had. I think another thing was is there was there were some things that they couldn't do that because their bible, their holy book and the god of the bible told them you're not supposed to do that. Fornication it's a sin. And you can whitewash if you want to and say well you know it's a different what do you think it says 2024 20, if you want to sleep with your girlfriend you can. If you want to live outside of that that's that's old fogey. no that's bible. <laughs> God, is, God, God their, their things are just as black and white. And you can't use culture to explain them away. The Bible talks about alcohol. It talks about, he said, don't drink it. It says, he says, look not on the alcohol and, and, the, and the wine when it's fermented. Don't even look at it. It's amazing. People will take alcohol and they bring it around the cup and just look at it like they want to worship it. They get in clear glasses, and they, boy, it piles out, and, and, and the phone comes over, and it's like that. I see guys, and you watch a sporting event, and some clown, they, they used to say, Hi, Mom. Now they find two beers. Hoo, hoo, hoo. The camera, they give them the camera. Hoo, hoo. They show their beer. Like, what in the world? It's crazy. God's already given us his opinion about that. Well, yeah, but I, I tell you what, I think social drink is nothing wrong. I mean, just as long as you don't get drunk. Let me tell you, Spanky, how you don't get drunk. You don't drink. And you take one drink, and you're going to be inebriated to some extent. God commands it. And, you know, you can explain it away if you want to, but if you're a child of God, you ought to live in a little bit. And a lot of people say, well, I'm not sure I want all those rules. I'm not sure I want the stigma. I'm not sure I want the rules. I'm not sure I want to live on that standard. And, and you can pick and choose, friend. You're going to go, to, you're going to go, you're going to go into eternity in a few, few days. And you can go into eternity glad you did or wish you would have. But you know another sad thing? Why reasons that people don't accept Jesus Christ is because of hypocritical, inconsistent Christians like me and you. They hear it. They understand it. They just don't see it. They don't see it in our marriages. They don't see it in our behavior. They don't see it in how we pay our bills. They don't see it in how we conduct our, our lives and our honesty. They don't see it in our, in our language. We're no different than the world. They don't want another cheap, a cheap imitation of the world. I think no doubt is this centurion, he probably had interest in the God of the Bible, but maybe he had to say, you know, wow, there's a stigma. Well, if I did that, my life might change a lot being a Christian centurion working for the Roman government. If I did that, boy, I'd have to elevate my behavior if I obey the Bible. But then if I did that, I'm not sure I want to do it because I've known some of these Christians and they're hypocritical, they're Pharisees, they mistreat each other, they don't show love to God and others. They don't pay their bills on time. They don't communicate with people with grace. They're harsh on on the, the waitress at the restaurant. They're just like I am. They drink the same alcohol I drink. They live the same way I do. They talk the same way. They get on the same social media. They post the same dumb stuff everybody else does. They complain about how hard it is to be them. They're no different. I think this centurion might have had something that happens today in our society. But, you know, I think what we find here is this guy had enough faith to believe, you know what? Jesus can heal in spite of distance. He doesn't have to be in my house to do anything. He can do it wherever he wants to do it. You know, I think it's so important, you know, that God is greater than distance. I'm going to take you to the next one, and tonight we'll talk about the third one. I hope you'll be back tonight at 6 o'clock, and our church services here, for those of you who don't know, I think it's very good to come back on a Sunday night, take, go home, take your nap, and get back. If you don't take your nap, still come back. It's a different service, different songs, and different passages of Scripture. But I'd like to encourage you, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word. Your faith will grow as you hear more of what God has to say, not because of I'm saying it. But you find this guy he understood something. He understood that God could overcome the matter of distance. You know, some of you, you're praying for someone. They're not here right now. They're not anywhere near you. But you know, they're not outside the reach of God. Because we have faith in him to do things that that he can reach beyond distance. Number two, he can reach beyond death. I'm going to just quickly go through this, and would you follow with me, if you would, please, in the next one, verse number 11. And it came to pass the day after, it's about 24 miles away, they went into a city called Nain. So it was a long walk they made in a day's time. Probably a part of the day that, that day, and then probably part of the day. And I want you to notice the next one, and... Many of his disciples went with him and much people. Now, when he came nigh the gate of the city, behold, there was a dead man carried out. There was a funeral procession. And the only son of his mother and she was a widow. And much of the people of the city was with her. There was two entourages coming in colliding at the same time. Many of the disciples with Jesus, so this wasn't just the 12. There are many people that are following Jesus, and there are many people following a casket. A bearer there, and there are guys who are carrying it. No doubt there are minstrels playing flutes and getting people's attention. There are mourners who are saying, a loss, a hero, a loss, a son, And, and, and a professional mourner getting everybody's attention, and people would stop and maybe bow or... They might even send some money out to the widows, and people are following this casket. Two entourages coming and colliding at the gate, one coming in to Nain, one coming out. And here we find there's a boy laying on 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 a stretcher, being held up by people who's dead. His body has been cleaned. He has been wrapped and shrouded. And they're taking him out to Endor, where they're going to bury him there. And Jesus sees the funeral, and he especially sees the widow woman who's losing her last lifeline, her young adult son. And he has compassion on her. Look and see what he does, if you would please. If you would please look, and the Bible says, verse 13, And, he, and, the Lord, and, and when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. Boy, wouldn't that be a good thing for us to have. And he said unto her, Weep not. That's normally not what you say at a funeral. I've been to 351 funerals, or excuse me, 531 funerals, and I never told people, stop crying, stop it, knock it off. Stop crying. No, that's what he said. He said, stop crying. Don't weep. Verse 14, and he came and touched the beer. He touched the casket. And they that bare him stood still, and he said, Young man, I say unto thee, Arise. And he that was dead set up and began to speak, and he delivered him to his mother. And there came fear on all, and they glorified God, saying that a great prophet is risen up from among us, that God hath visited his people. And the rumor, or the word, or the report of him went forth throughout all the Judea, throughout all the regions round about, and the disciples of John showed him of all these things." Here we find that Jesus is not limited by distance and he is not limited by death. Even his own death, he was resurrected. He only healed three people back from the dead. One was a little girl, a damsel, and he spoke to her. He said, Damsel, come forth. Another guy in John chapter 11, his name was Lazarus, and he called, Lazarus, get out of there. And this guy, he said, Young man, arise. And he stepped up and talked, You know, I'm grateful Now God can do anything he wants to do anytime he wants to do it. You know what's the most wonderful thing is, is that you cannot just, you're not going to avoid your first death. All three of these people died later because it's a point in demand wants to die. You're going to die physically, but you don't have to die eternally. You don't have to die and go to hell. There's two deaths in the Bible. The first is a physical death. Both deaths are separation. When someone dies physically, the reason we weep is because we won't get to see them again. We won't get to be with them again. We won't get to answer their call again. It's over. We have been separated from our loved one. That's why we cry. And when we die, those who love us will be separated from us, and that's why they'll cry. Because death is not annihilation, it's separation. And you can't avoid it. You're not going to live forever with the body you live in right now. But the second death is to be put into the lake of fire forever and ever and ever. Forever separated from God. And God doesn't want you to be separated from him. Matter of fact, the most famous verse in the Bible, for God so loved the, that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in Jesus would not perish. What does perish mean? Die. The second death. But they would have the opposite of that, eternal life. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. If I have to pay for my sin, you have to pay for your own sin, you're going to die two times. Physically separate from your body and loved ones and eternally separate from a God who didn't want it that way. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Remember, it says the gift of God is eternal what? Life, opposite of eternal death. And it's true. Let me just tell you something. If you're here today, you're not sure if you were to die, you go to heaven. Please don't talk to your loved ones around you. Listen carefully. This is too important. If you're here and you're not for sure if you died, you go to heaven. I want you to get saved today. God wants you to be saved. He loves you. He wants you to have forgiveness of sin. You don't have to wonder tonight if you're going to die, you go to heaven. You can know that for sure. Because Jesus did it all. All to him we owe. He, the innocent, died for us, the guilty. Have you accepted his gift of eternal life? Let's pray together, can we?